Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice. Believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Kim Jong-un is this uh, tin pot dictator of a country that's got a GDP that's probably the size of Detroit, and, uh, or less. And he has been elevated to the world stage by Donald Trump as like some big major player and some guy who represents a real threat to world peace. But, you know, if I can just get world peace, I don't care if I get the Nobel Peace Prize. I just want world peace. Kim Jong-un has nothing to do with world peace. Let's just be upfront about this. He represents a threat to nobody except arguably South Korea, and South Korea has worked this out with him. And the, our media is not talking about this. And it's really important stuff. And this ties into Korea, the, the whole Korean situation. It ties into Iran. It ties into Israel and Syria and all this stuff that's going on. We'll get to all that stuff. And, and, and frankly, even to, uh, you know, to everything that's going on internationally. But, but let me just nail this down for you. Let me explain what I'm talking about. There's this meme in the Koreas around USB drives, flash drives. It is when North Koreans and South Koreans get together or when it's possible for South Koreans to smuggle things into North Korea, the most common thing that's smuggled into North Korea are, are thumb drives, USB drives. And it makes the North Koreans crazy. They hate it. And what's brought in on these USB drives is typically Western music, South Korean music, uh, you know, pop culture stuff, uh, uh, TV shows, news reports, you know, just generally subversive stuff from the point of view of the North. And when they catch people with these things, they execute them or they send them to the prisons where they've got hundreds of thousands of prisoners right now in North Korea. So when President Moon of South Korea met with Kim Jong-un, the dictator of North Korea, back a week or so ago, a couple weeks ago, in the DMZ. He gave him a USB drive. But what's, and which is in and of itself pretty amazing, because that's like a major crime from the point of view of the North Koreans, to receive a USB drive from a South Korean. So, so Moon gives Kim a USB drive. And on that USB drive, that Kim has, we now know, and this was just published uh, yesterday in the, in the uh, Guardian, but uh, the copy, actually the story I have in front of me right now is from the Business Insider, businessinsider.com, that on that USB drive is a map. It's titled, it's actually an ebook and a presentation, and it's, it's all in Korean, and it's titled A New Economic Map for the Korean Peninsula. And quoting from this article by... Uh, no, it doesn't have a byline, but it's from businessinsider.com. The map is a blueprint for economic cooperation between North and South Korea. It includes three belts, one along the eastern coast and Russian border for energy and resources, another along the west coast for transportation and logistics, and a third across the land border for tourism. Moon, the president of South Korea, most likely wants to use the map, which also outlines gas pipes and an inter-Korean train network that could connect China, Russia, and Europe, to entice North Korea to keep, you know, to uh, keep to the uh, Panjom Declaration signed at the DMZ. 
The USB makes the case to Kim there is really another path for you, says John Delury, a North Korea expert at Yonsei University. Delury told Axios that the flash drive would send a message to Kim, we're serious about working with you and we think that your real ambition is to be a wealthy East Asian country. So just like Richard Nixon, it was against the law in 1972 for, for American companies to import goods manufactured in China because it was a communist country. But Richard Nixon changed that. And now we've got, you know, a $300 billion a year trade deficit with China and their slave labor is making most of our stuff. What Moon and Trump are proposing in North Korea is that North Korea do the same thing China has. That, that, that Kim become, becomes, the, you know, the dictator, Kim Jong-un, becomes the next Deng Xiaoping. The guy who liberalized trade, you know, in China, who, are, uh, who, who create all these state-run enterprises and things like this. This, by the way, is exactly what happened in 1965 when General Park staged a military coup in South Korea. At that point in time, South Korea had a uh, GDP and a per capita income that was similar to that of Kenya, around $700 per person per year. And uh, Park industrialized South Korea and put into place import bans and encouraged the export of goods manufactured in South Korea. And in 10 years, he transformed South Korea from a backwater whose major export was human hair for wigs and fish into a major industrial power. What Moon is saying to Kim is, we'll help you do the same thing in the North. And Trump is all over this. Now, as I said, Kim represents no threat to anybody except South Korea. South Korea has figured out how to deal with him. Moon handled this whole thing himself. Moon ran for president. On a, on a platform of bringing Kim in and, and helping out and, and, you know, bringing peace to North and South Korea without expelling Kim. Kim now has like an 80%, you know, the dictator of North Korea has like an 80% approval rating in South Korea. It was only 20% just a year or so ago. So this is what's going on. It's not Donald Trump who's making this happen. It's, it's uh, Moon Jae-in. It is the, the president of South Korea, the newly elected president of South Korea. But Trump goes over and he brings back three hostages, two of, which were, two of whom were taken during his presidency. Now, you'll recall during the Obama administration, North Korea released 11 hostages. 11. And Donald Trump never once said, hey, good job, Obama. But right now, Trump is running around going, hey, give me credit. I got these three guys out. Over at uh, Democratic Underground, Lewis C. Posts, posts a fascinating post. I, I recommend you read it. He says, I don't get it. Why is Trump praising Kim Jong-un for hostage taking? He says, they shouldn't have taken these hostages in the first place. This only encourages them to take hostages in the future if things don't go well. He says, my analogy in all this is if some fool kidnapped my kid and then released him two years later, you can rest assured I'd be happy to see my kid, but I would certainly not be praising the kidnapper. Trump has essentially normalized this dictator, Kim Jong-un. Because, you know, he kind of understands him. Meanwhile, while we're spending all this time and attention on a part of the world that represents basically no threat to us at all, except that if North Korea industrializes the way that Moon is suggesting, there'll be another manufacturing center for American companies that want to export U.S. labor and import goods now made in North Korea, right? It's, that's what's going to happen. But in the meantime, you've got a war going on in Syria. Now, Iran is an ally of Syria and of Russia. And Russia has their, their Mediterranean deep water port in Syria. And so they're interested in protecting that country and the guy who runs it, Bashar al-Assad. Iran has uh, location, they've got 11, I believe, locations around Syria. Now Syria is really consequential to Israel because it's Israel's northern border. And the Golan Heights, which is where a lot of conflict is happening right now, were seized by Israel, and I believe it was the Six Day War, it was one of those conflicts, uh, used to be part of Syria. Syria wants it back. It's considered occupied territory, but, you know, it, it looks down over both Israel and Syria. So it's strategically really important. So I don't think Israel's ever going to give it up. But what happened was once we backed out of the whole Iran deal, you know, the day after, I mean, yesterday, Israel launched a major attack on Syria. Now they, they're saying this is in response to Syria or to Iranian, excuse me, an attack on Iranian positions in Syria. And they're saying, well, the Iranians fired these rockets into the Golan Heights, where we are. And we're not going to put up with that. But there's some backstory here that's really important. 
Kurt Eichenwald is tweeting about this. You can read it over on his Twitter feed. He says, in 1985, Ronald Reagan considered it so important to get a moderate government in Iran that Reagan dealt with three people he considered potential allies. One of them who met with National Security Advisor Robert McFarlane was Hassan Rouhani. Because of that meeting, U.S. sent arms to Iran. This was the Iran-Contra deal. Rouhani became president of Iran, just like Reagan wanted. The hope with Rouhani being in office was that we would be able to kneecap the hardliners and begin steps of negotiations with the intent of establishing an Iranian-U.S. detente by 2030. And then he talks about how the War Army War College said this is a whole long-term strategic play that we're doing. And we've got now Rouhani as president of Iran, right, taking on the hardliners. In fact, uh, Eichenwald says, we were at the point where banking sanctions should have been removed. But no, instead, we spit in Rouhani's face because idiots see this as being about Obama. So now the Iranian hardliners, the ones we wanted out, are celebrating. Because this critically undermined Rouhani, making his position less stable. What Trump did, blowing up the Iran deal. Hardliners are now proclaiming that they were right, that the U.S. would never keep an agreement. They just could never understand that we wouldn't keep the agreement because Republicans get their national security knowledge, not from the Army War College, not from the Naval War College, not from international think tanks, intelligence services, or allies. No, they get their, their uh, intelligence information, their security knowledge, from the entertainers at Fox News. We are a country of abysmal stupidity where people don't read and get all their information from TV and Internet blogs, proclaim, but proclaim themselves brilliant at every topic. The possibility of a detente with Iran went down the toilet today. This was the day before yesterday. No Iranian leader will ever take the risk of striking a deal with the United States again. Rouhani might fall unless smarter nations in Western Europe, as well as the Russians and China, can salvage the damage from our, I would say, Trump's vast, aching stupidity. Either way, we have lost a key lever in the Middle East because the Republicans refuse to play the long game, but instead go for tonight's ratings on Fox News. Spot on, Kurt Eichenwald. So while we're ignoring a real problem in a part of the world that could lead to World War III, the Middle East, and we're disengaging with Rouhani, our ally in Iran, and slapping him in the face, just Trump is doing this just to, just to suck up to the Fox News pundits. And, of course, because Obama cut the deal. At the same time this is happening, we're putting all this effort in North Korea, which is going to produce basically nothing for us. This is the Tom Hartman Program. This is the blinding idiocy of the Trump administration and the Republican Party. Get into, you know, other topics as well, if you would like. But number one, David Goodall, the oldest science scientist in Australia, is 104 years old or was 104 years old until yesterday. When he died, uh, he is of sound mind and failing body, losing his eyesight, losing his hearing. He said for the last five years, life has basically been intolerable from the time he was 99 until he was 104. And his name is David Goodall. And he was asking the Australian authorities for permission to end his own life. And they said no. And he said, then I want to go to, to Basel, Switzerland, where there's the suicide clinic. And they will let me end my own life. They will help me end my own life. And the Australian authorities said, well, we're going to actually try to prevent you from even getting on the airplane. They were unsuccessful in preventing him, and he flew to Switzerland. In his final hours, this is from Philip Olderman in, in uh, The Guardian. In his final hours, Goodall enjoyed his favorite dinner, fish and chips and cheesecake. And in his final minutes, he listened to Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, best known for its last movement, Ode to Joy reportedly passing away shortly after that piece of music finished. To end his own life, Goodall had to turn a wheel that allowed a lethal infusion to flow into his bloodstream through a cannula on his arm. Assisted dying, where patients take the final action to end their own lives, is legal in Canada, the Netherlands, Luxembourg, Switzerland, and parts of the U.S. That would be uh, Washington and, and Oregon. I, I think there may be other states, but I'm not sure. Anyhow, though, he was not terminally ill, but he said that, you know, life just really sucks. He spent his final full day exploring Basel University's botanic gardens with three of his grandchildren who said they were proud of his bravery in the face of great public attention and were glad he could die on his own terms. At his last press conference on Wednesday, Goodall was in good spirits yesterday and sang a few bars of Ode to Joy while wearing a jumper a sweater printed with the words aging disgracefully. Do you think that we should legalize physician-assisted suicide in the United States? I do. 
You know, I, I watched my father die. He had cancer, but he, it, it threw off clots, which stroked him out. And for six or seven days, he was locked in. He could hear and see everything. He could feel all the pain. He couldn't say a word. It was a horrible, horrible thing to watch. He died basically of dehydration. They stopped giving him food and water, and when his kidney shut down, he died. And it was a horrible death. I would not wish that on anybody. We would not inflict that on our pets. Why did we have to inflict that on my dad? Why, why is it that, that our system intends to inflict that on you and me if things don't go well at the end of our lives? So there's that. I, I just throw that question out for you. Also, uh, Michael, Mike Levin, Mike Levin, uh, California, or Levin, is uh, tweeting, why isn't it a bigger deal that Michael Cohen was the deputy finance chair of the Republican National Committee while he was being paid by Russian oligarchs and big corporations? This is on the whole Republican Party. As far as I know, he still is the deputy finance chair of the RNC, although odds are he has resigned. And meanwhile, uh, Mike Pence, Mike Pence is calling for the end of the Mueller investigation. It's getting weird out there. Your thoughts, my thoughts, and more on the news of the day right after this. Stick around. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Call 202-808-9925. We'll be back with more of the news and Adam Schiff's tweet about Mike Pence. Mike Pence is bizarre. Right after this break. Wow, this is amazing. This is from Politicus USA. Uh, House Intelligence Committee Democrats have released over 3,000 ads that the Russians purchased on Facebook to elect Donald Trump, and the ads specifically seek to sow division in our country while targeting, among others, Sean Hannity fans and Fox News viewers. NBC News reported, quote, in the two final ads purchased by the Russian propaganda campaign in August of last year, the troll farm pushed an ad for its anti-immigration page, Secured Borders, to fans of Fox News primetime personality Sean Hannity, Tucker Carlson, Laura Ingram, and Bill O'Reilly, and to followers of the Fox News channel itself. The same page targeted followers of right-wing personalities such as Rush Limbaugh, Michelle Malkin, and Michael Savage, along with Facebook accounts that liked President Trump and Jesus Christ. Right. Very bizarre. Meanwhile, uh, Brian Schatz, the senator from uh, wherever he's from, Hawaii, I think, um, just tweeted, and this is just absolutely brilliant. He said, it is super weird and unrelated to any recent revelations and, of course, I think he's being tongue-in-cheek sarcastic here. Before I finish reading this, just let me remind you, Michael Cohen sold access to Donald Trump to a giant pharmaceutical company and to a giant Internet service provider, Novartis and AT&T. Now, what did those guys want? The pharmaceutical company wanted deregulation of prescription drug prices, and, the, and AT&T wanted deregulation of the Internet, ending, ending net neutrality. So back to Brian Schatz. It is a super weird and unrelated to any recent revelations that the price of prescription medicine is skyrocketing and the FCC just eliminated net neutrality? Yeah. And then you got Mike Pence. Mike Pence saying, hey, it's time to wrap up the investigation. He told this to Andrew Mitchell this morning. Right. Just like Richard Nixon said. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Tamara or Tamara in Joplin, Missouri. How, how do I say your name? Tamara. Good morning. Tamara. I had, I had call to disagree with you. The Republicans aren't stupid. They're taking us down a road that they have wanted to go down for 40 years since Reagan. They want to make the United States a one-party rule. They want to be like Saudi Arabia and Iran. They want to be the hardliners running everything, making everybody a Jesus Christ Christian. This is the way they see the United States becoming. And the idiots that vote in the red states, they're helping them. Because they're they're the ones that are stupid. The the voters are the stupid ones. Because they can't see that their kid is going to be begging for change on the street so he can go to grade school, like in China. No, I, I don't you know disagree. And in fact, I was just looking for a clip. You know, George W. Bush famously said, you know, this would be a heck of a lot easier if I was a dictator. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I can't disagree with that, that, that the Republicans are working towards single party rule. And in fact, what we see is if you look at the way that they're trying to rig our election system, 
is that they are definitely working for single party rule. And by the way, and, T and Tamara, thank you for the call. And by the way, that single party would represent exclusively white people. For example, in Michigan, the Republicans in Michigan, Rick, Rick Snyder's uh, uh, hometown, you know, uh, state, uh, Michigan Republicans are pushing work requirements for Medicaid that are designed to spare poor white people and hurt poor black people. Honest to God. Nick Bagley and Elliot Savitt, uh, Savitt wrote the New York Times, and I quote, many of the legislators supporting Michigan's work requirements, this is, you know, people who are low income and they're on Medicaid, they get their health insurance through the state. What they're going to say is now you can't, you have to apply, you have to prove that you're looking for work uh, or that you're working. You have to prove that you're working or you can't continue to get your Medicaid. Right. Well, what happens if you live in a county or in a city where the unemployment rate is so high that there's simply no jobs? Well, here, here we go. Many of the legislators supporting Michigan's work requirements come from rural districts with high unemployment. Many of those districts are predominantly white. To protect their white constituents, these Republican legislators have included a safety valve in the bill. If you live in a county with, high, with an unemployment rate over 8.5%, you're exempt from the work requirements. Yet that safety valve does not apply equally. Specifically, it does little for Michigan's black residents who are concentrated in cities like Detroit, Detroit Muskegon, and Flint. While these cities suffer from chronically high unemployment rates, they happen to all be in counties with low unemployment rates. The city of Flint, for example, has an unemployment rate of 10%, but Genesee County, where Flint is located, the rate is just 5.8%. The upshot is that no one in Michigan's biggest cities can take advantage of the safety valve. In other words, no black people will get a waiver from the Medicaid rules that the Republicans are pushing in Michigan, but all the white people in, in rural areas that have high unemployment, they'll all get a waiver. Brilliant. Tim in Lansdale, Pennsylvania. Hey, Tim, you wanted to talk about assisted suicide? Yes. Hello, Tom. Uh, thank you for taking my call. Yes, my wife um, had ALS, and she Lou Gehrig's disease. refused to uh, have her, li her life continue with it and paying the $300,000 a year, plus with no quality of life. So, of course, we traveled to uh, Switzerland for assisted suicide. Wow. And she took her own life. Yeah. What was that experience like, Tim? Well, it was surreal, but um, it was peaceful. She's extremely, I'm going to use the word happy, that her life ended on her own terms rather than just being uh, stranded in a bed and only being able to um, move her eyes. So she went out being still able to walk and talk a little bit. Well, she, I, I think uh, in Switzerland you would have to because you've, you've got to flip the lever, the mm -hmm. push the button or whatever it is yourself. Yes, she had to push, be able to push the button. Um, yeah. They do require sometimes you to drink the uh, the barbiturate, but in her circumstances, they used the uh, IV. Yeah. So all she had to do was push a button. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's a few states that have allowed it. I think are starting to uh, hopefully there's an idea that it's going to start taking up in this country. But the way things are going now, I kind of doubt it. Did I, I, I'm I'm guessing from the way that you're describing this that you supported her decision. Did you have other family members who were fighting back? Was this a did this become a contentious issue in your family? No, because uh, pretty much the family understood the situation, and we sat and watched her de uh, deteriorate. And right. the worst thing about it was, of course, was leaving Pennsylvania, leaving her family and friends behind to go to Switzerland to uh, have it done. Yeah, well, this is what the Australian doctor said, was he wanted to die in Australia with his, with his mm -hmm. kids around him uh, who live and work in Australia. And yeah. uh, he couldn't because Australia makes it illegal. So. Yeah, and it's the same thing in Pennsylvania. Yeah. Tim, thank you for sharing your story sure. with us, and thank you okay, for listening to SiriusXM. I appreciate mm -hmm. it. Chris in Bensonville, Illinois. Hey, Chris, what's up? Oh, hi, Tom. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, yeah, a year ago I uh, spent uh, about a year in a nursing home and to manage some medication. You know, I wasn't in that bad of shape uh, physically. But, you know, after a while in there, uh, I kept having people walk up to me and say, wouldn't it be wonderful if I went to sleep tonight and I didn't wake up? And during the night, I would hear people moaning, yeah. you know, because they wanted to leave, but they had no way to check out. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. Yeah. And I dread, <laughs> I dread rotting away in a nursing home. Yeah, me too. And when I was in South America 10 years ago, I picked up a nerve toxin that's used by the Yanomamo Indians. Mm -hmm. And caused death in three to four seconds. I still have it. You know, <laughs> I always make sure I know where it is in case somebody, you know... That's interesting that that was in South Africa, you said, because the Yamamamo is a Brazilian tribe. No, I said South America. I'm oh, sorry. South America. Yeah. I, okay, great. Yeah. yeah. And uh, you know, the reason I found out about that, I took uh, anthropology in college, and I found out about the Yamamamo's. Uh, yeah, they use that for talk. their poison arrows, right? 
or blow darts yeah. or whatever it is. Yeah. Fascinating. And the Hebrews, too. So, another tribe to use them, too. Yeah. So but I feel a lot better knowing that I can check out on my own terms. Well, so, yeah, so you've got your plan B. And, and in fact, that's the story. I mean, I, I was living here in Oregon when, this, when the state of Oregon passed the assisted suicide, physician-assisted suicide law. And, the, the, and I talked with a number of physicians who actually were prescribing lethal doses of barbiturate to their patients. And the story that they told over and over, and we talked with several people who, were, uh, who had had these drugs prescribed to them. First of all, you have to have two doctors sign off. Secondly, you have to be within six months of dying, according to those two doctors. And, and third, you have to be of sound mind, right? So, you, you know, it's, it's, this is clearly your decision. But what, what the story that they told was that more often than not, once the people got the bottle, the little bottle of barbiturate, all you do is just drink that thing down and you fall asleep in about a half hour and you're dead in an hour. Um, mm -hmm. Once they got that bottle of, of, of uh, phenobarbital, they set it next to the bed and they would look at it and every day they'd wake up and say, okay, is today the day? No, I don't think so. I can go one more day. And actually people, you know, because they weren't panicking anymore, they weren't freaked out, People weren't going out and buying guns and making messes all over the wall, you know, that their neighbors and friends have to deal with their family. And instead, they tended to live longer than people of similar circumstances who were using messier techniques to commit suicide, um, uh, which I found fascinating. Chris, I have to move along, but thank you for the call. Thanks for sharing your story with us. Ken in Shippenville, Pennsylvania, it says you want to disagree with me about North Korea? Yeah, Tom, I want to have a discussion with you. I mean, uh, there's some things I agree with you about, but there's some things... I disagree. I agree that what the North Koreans want is a Sun Xiaoping type economy, have a little bit of like a little China. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, China got rich. They want to get, everybody wants to get rich, so why would they not? That's right. That's right. And I think but where I disagree with you is why did they change their strategy? Now, the North? I believe, yeah. Because why, finally why? they had a partner in the South who was willing to work with them. Park, uh, excuse me, uh, 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 what's his name? Moon, the current president Hello? of South Korea, is the first South Korean president who had a national mandate to reconcile with the North. All the previous South Korean presidents got elected by being bellicose, by ch pounding their chests and yelling, ah, terrible dictator, I will, I will well, protect you from the terrible dictator. Park, uh, Moon came along and said, I will negotiate with the terrible dictator and we will end this threat. And the Korean people submit, support that. I submit to you that the reason why they changed their strategy is because of the pressure that was applied by Donald Trump. Donald Trump didn't apply any pressure. He he sent out some tweets. That's not pressure. No, he, the he pressure that they were they, the pressure that, that that Kim is experiencing, the dictator of North Korea, the pressure that he's experiencing is economic. And it's in his own country. I mean, if you want to talk about the sanctions, those were started under, under what, the George Bush administration? Maybe even the, 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 the Bill Clinton administration? We've had, and certainly Obama ramped them up. We've had sanctions in North Korea forever. Ken, this was not a Trump triumph. It definitely was not. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archive. Trump is being the wimp here. Trump is the weakling who is kowtowing to a tin pot dictator in a little tiny country, elevating him on the world stage. It's terrible. Hey, I've got to tell you about the world's best chair. Most of us spend over 2,000 hours a year sitting in our office chairs, and if you have back problems or trouble concentrating throughout the day, there's a simple reason. You're sitting in the wrong chair. Take your chair, your style, and your productivity to the next level with an X chair. The X chair's unique anthropomorphic design and dynamic variable lumbar support cradle your body in a way you need to feel to believe. And a more comfortable posture means better concentration and much higher productivity. In fact, if you're a business owner, there's no better way to reward your top performers than giving them an X chair. And the X chair's sleek, modern style will upgrade the entire look of your office. Give yourself and your staff the gift that pays dividends five days a week, year round. Feel and see the X chair difference by going to xchairtom.com right now. That's the letter X, chair, Tom, T-H-O-M, Dot com or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR. If you're not truly thrilled by the look and feel after 30 days, refer, return it for a full refund. Order today and save 100 bucks and get free shipping. If you go to xchairtom.com right now and enter the code TOM, T-H-O-M, you get a free footrest. That's xchairtom.com or call 1-844-X-CHAIR. We have one here. We love it. xchairtom.com. This is the Tom Hartman Program. 
Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Uh, Richard Wolf, Professor Richard Wolf is on the line with us, the economist, co-founder of Democracy at Work, the author most recently of Capitalism's Crisis Deepens, Essays on the Global Economic Meltdown. Democracyatwork.info is the website. Also, rdwolf with two Fs dot com. And you can tweet him at Prof. Wolf with two Fs. Professor Wolf, welcome back. Thank you, Tom. Glad to be here. Glad to have you with us. So I got this bizarre email from uh, a, a right-wing think tank that says that I'm paying a $15,000 a year hidden tax because of government regulations and that we've got to get rid of government regulations because they're a drag on the economy and they're a tax on working people. What say you? Well, you know, it, it, it's pathetic. It's, it's really hard for me to come up with polite words, so I'll, I'll just get to the point of it. When you teach economics to young people in American universities, you explain to them, uh, as any reasonable person would, that when human beings get together to make regulations about their collective life, they do so in the hope of improving that life. So, for example, we make rules about how you have to behave on the road so we don't smash into each other as we cross intersections. We make rules about how much um, interest banks can charge uh, on credit cards so that we don't gouge the people who are desperately in need of that kind of support, and on and on and on. To act as though the only dimension of a regulation is the cost of implementing it rather than the social purpose it serves is simply silly. It's a kind of game in which you take a two-sided coin but refuse to look at one side and only on the other side, and it's a blatant effort of the objects of regulation in the United States to get out from under. Most regulations have been regulations of profit-making companies doing unsocial or antisocial things in order to lift their profits. The best example, because it's in people's minds today, is the taxi industry. When it first began, when cars would drive you around, it turned out that there was some danger here. Some of the drivers weren't the best folks. Some of the drivers weren't properly trained. Some of the cars weren't properly maintained, and they weren't insured. So if you had an accident, you weren't in a secure situation to get yourself fixed up. Okay, so we passed regulations requiring the car to be properly insured, requiring that the taxi be maintained. The idea that all we should look at is the cost of maintaining a regulation rather than to remember what in the world occasioned it in the first place is so grotesque a pandering that all I can say in response is shame on you and if we actually did what these crazy folks want us to do which is to deregulate we will literally go backwards in history to the very conditions that prompted these regulations in the first place so th this is corporate pandering, trying to get themselves back to a situation where they can disregard the social and human costs of what they do because the government will have denuded itself, defanged itself from any ability to control them. Right. Excellent point. Excellent points all. That's, that's a, a brilliant takedown of that. Thank you. Um, meanwhile, Bernie Sanders has proposed a, a sweeping plan to expand union rights. He's got sign-offs on this from many of the people who are expected to be candidates for, for the Democratic Party's presidential race in 2010, uh, Kamala Harris, um, and a number of others, actually. There's a whole long list of them. Um, I'm curious your thoughts on, on what he's proposing, which would basically be uh, saying that individual states cannot use the Taft-Hartley, you know, their particular variation on right to work for less. They can't use that to support or defend employers who fire people just simply because they're talking about or actually doing union organizing in the workplace? Well, you know, I, I am in support, 100% support of what Bernie Sanders is doing here. I believe it ties in beautifully with the selection you were reading just before we began this conversation. Because in effect, what Bernie is trying to do is to recreate some of the conditions that enabled uh, the New Deal to, to be brought to us. It was the strength of unions back in the 1930s, uh, consequent upon the CIO, which uh, everyone has to remember was the greatest unionizing drive in American history, uh, greater than anything before or since, those strong unions are what brought us 
Social Security, unemployment compensation, the first minimum wage, and a government hiring program, which did precisely what the author you were reading from said. It kept America out of becoming a fascist country like others beset by the Great Depression. It allowed us to come out of that uh, horrible World War II with a lesser degree of inequality of income and wealth than we had ever had before. Uh, it really changed the country in many ways for the better. So much has been undone of the New Deal since that it takes Bernie now, X years later, to begin to say, hey, let's go back and make an economy that at least begins to balance the extraordinary wealth and power accumulated over the last half century by corporate America with some sort of counterforce, something that can confront them with an equal support for the workers they hire so that we get back to a society that at least on some level recognizes that the workers are, after all, the majority, the workers are what make the society go, and that they've been on the losing end of a redistribution of power and wealth for the last 50 years. And he's beginning to, to try to move uh, against that by changing the laws, strengthening unionization, um, things like that, which take us back to the conditions out of which our last positive and progressive surge came. I would, if I'm allowed, um, demure and disagree just a little bit. To call what he is doing, which one of the acts uh, he named democracy in the workplace or something mm -hmm. close to that, um, I think there I would push a little harder than Bernie might be comfortable with. I love the concept of democracy at the workplace, but it means, I think, what it says. Democracy is a principle that holds if a human being is affected by a decision, then he or she has the right to participate in it. We can't be governed by kings or corporate executives whose decisions impact our lives in basic ways and then have no way to hold them accountable, no way to sh shape what they do. And we have a democracy, at least formally in our political life, but we've never had one in our economic life. You basically forego your democratic rights when you cross the threshold into your office, your factory, your, your store, where you work. And the few people at the top, board of directors, shareholders, major shareholders, and so on, make the decisions you live with them, including closing the factory down or moving the business to China or whatever else. That's not a democratic arrangement. I love the concept of democracy. I would just push it a little further and say, ultimately, to be genuinely democratic, it should be the workers and perhaps the customers of whatever the enterprise produces who ought together to make the decisions about what goes on there since they are the overwhelming majority of those affected by what any enterprise does. Yeah, very well said. I think the the you know Bernie was on the show every Friday for eleven years, so I've heard his uh, his riff on this a number of times, and it's basically that the only that, that that corporations, workplaces, corporations are set up essentially along the lines of kingdoms. You've got the king, you've got the princes, you know, uh, right. you know, you've got the, the whole hierarchical structure. Whereas a union is actually a democratic institution, so where where its workers own it and its workers decide what it does on behalf of them. And so uh, a union is literally a democratic institution inserted into the workplace. And while that's not true democracy in the workplace, it's a damn good start. That was, that's Bernie's point. Yeah, and he's right. And, and ironically, it goes back to the <laughs> earlier question. Some of the regulations passed in the Congress of the United States over the last 50 years have been precisely regulations that impose and require the very democratic structure you just described to be the operating principle inside a union. And there have even been uh, legal and other challenges to unions if they depart from the democratic rules uh, that regulations established for them to pursue. And so I think it's a wonderful example. Do, do those folks really want all the regulations of unions to go? Of course not. Right. They're shields for the business community that wants more freedom to take more money out of our pocket. Yeah, they're, they're very selective in their outrage. Professor Richard yes. Wolf, great talking with you as always. Thank you, sir. Okay, Tom. Thank you very much. Democracyatwork.info is the website and rdwolf.com, and you can tweet him at Prof Wolf. This is the Tom Hartman Program.
We'll be back with more of the news of the day and your calls right after this. It's your media support group for We the People, the Tom Hartman program. Alan in Crown Point, Indiana. Hey, Alan, thanks for listening to WCPT. What's up? Yeah, Tom. Uh, there's two things. First of all, I was wondering how you're doing, your physical. Are you doing better? I'm fine. I, my, uh, my lungs still have a little bit of raggedness to them. It was a pretty nasty virus, but uh, I'm fine. So thank you for asking. Ask you, I was going to ask you your vitamin D level. If your doctor hadn't check your vitamin D level. It's good. Make sure he has. I take 5,000 units okay. a day, and uh, I also take K2 okay. along with it, so I'm, you okay. know, my vitamin D levels are good. So, but that's not okay. what you called about, Alan. You want to talk about North Korea? No, that's not what I called. Uh, the, the reason I called, I am glad that at least we're seeing something in North Korea, South Korea, that whole peninsula. And anybody who can do anything, I am for it. And yeah. we can check it out because Pre President Obama did make a statement on MSNBC when he left. He said, we do have a mess, and of course we know it, in Korea. So anything we can do, I am for whatever. Yeah, me too. Me too. I, I, I know you know, you but, but I don't think that Donald Trump deserves a Nobel Peace Prize for the work that uh, President Moon of South Korea did. Okay. Well, whatever. Yeah. Whatever goes, I hope they can get it. <laughs> okay. And you too. Thanks a lot, Alan. Thank, thank you for your call. And thanks for your kind words. Uh, Larry in Lancaster, California. You think Trump should get all the credit? Yeah, you say you have the smartest listeners. Even Trump. You're not going to blow up my, my, my uh, assertion that I have the smartest listeners here, Larry, by, by being dumb on the air on me, are you? No, Moon even praised Trump and said he deserves the credit for what's going on. Oh, yeah, he and, said that four or five days ago. In fact, Moon even said that uh, Trump should be considered for the Nobel Peace Prize. Everybody has figured out that if they want to get the United States on their side, they have to suck up to Donald Trump. Um, the no, fact that that works up. doesn't mean it's good policy. He said, he said this a month ago in front of the White House. Yeah. So, so? That you're being naive not to think that Trump is wrong because of Trump. I see. So you, you, you completely discount the, the two years of prep work that President Moon did in South Korea, the year of campaigning for his, his presidency, all the campaigns. You, you discount all the work that he did with the Olympics, uh, you know, everything else, all that time that Donald Trump was, you know, basically spitting on the process, calling, calling, uh, uh, Kim, you know, little rocket man and fat and stuff. Uh, you're discounting all of everything that President Moon did, and you're saying that, that all of this happened because Donald Trump insulted the guy. Is that? Uh, do I understand that correctly? Yeah, because Donald Trump is being tough. Okay. Like Reagan was. Larry, Larry, you're right. I don't have the smartest listeners in the world. Thanks a lot for the call. Kevin in uh, Burn, Texas. Am I saying it right, Kevin? Uh, burning, but you're right. You're close, close enough, Tom. Okay, great. Thanks for listening to SiriusXM. What's up? You got a first time, long time. I appreciate everything you do, Tom. My Thank question you. for you today is: I've been noticing. Uh, I I live outside of San Antonio area. When I drive into town on a major interstate, there's a huge billboard that says Robert Mueller. Have you thought this through? Hashtag thanks liberal media, and it's paid for by a local citizen. I was just kind of wondering your take on local citizens pushing their propaganda on people. <laughs> I have. I, you know, I don't know, Kevin, and I you know I take your word that that's what the billboard says and that it's there. Um, there, there is a reality, and this is being debated in, in democratic circles right now. Uh, there is the, 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 the very kind of naked reality, uh, no pun intended, that Bill Clinton became more popular as a result of being impeached. And, mm -hmm. uh, and, and it helped Democrats tremendously in the 2000 election. And it's, I, I think that, frankly, the Clinton impeachment is the reason why George W. Bush lost the 2000 election. I mean, it was handed, he was the hand of the presidency by the Supreme Court, but when you look at the actual vote, he lost the election. And uh, so, you know, the Republicans are looking at this going, yeah, please, impeach Trump. You know, good luck with that. And, and mm. I think that they're right. I think that if the Democrats try to impeach Donald Trump, lacking a broad consensus by the American people, if this is something that's driven by the political class and the economic elites, it is not only going to fail, it's going to backfire. On the other hand, if we have a, because it'll be like the Clinton situation. On the other hand, mm -hmm. if you've got the Nixon situation playing out instead, where you've got the, uh, the crimes of the president being laid out in front of the American people in a way that is completely impossible to ignore or, or pretend, you know, uh, or deny. And at that point, the American people, you know, I remember Sam Irvin, you know, good old Senator Sam, you know, just asking these questions, laying this stuff out in these public hearings. And it was so obvious to all of us 
I mean, I was a, you know, 73. I was, I was 21 years old. I was a kid, and I got it right. I think everybody got it that Nixon was a crook, and the people around him were crooks, and they needed to be in prison. And so when that consensus hit, even Republicans were willing to vote for the impeachment of Richard Nixon. And when he heard from Republicans that they were going to vote for his impeachment, that's the point at which he stepped down. So I think that the 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 the, the, the Democratic calculus, you know, politically speaking, here has to be very very simple. If there is a broad consensus, and I'm talking 60, 70, 80 percent agreement among the American electorate, Democratic and Republican, that Donald Trump has committed crimes, that he's a grifter, that he's a criminal, that the people around him, the, the crime family that surrounds him have committed crimes, then yeah, go ahead and impeach him or threaten to impeach him, and he'll probably resign. But if there is not that consensus, do not, do not throw him in that briar patch. Kevin, thanks for the call. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Call 202-808-9925 back with more of your calls right after this. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back to the third hour of our program. Talk media for the rest of us here. So Michael Cohen is apparently selling access to Donald Trump. In previous eras, that would be highly illegal. But maybe not so much anymore, thanks to right-wingers on the U.S. Supreme Court. And I find this just absolutely fascinating. I remember when the Bob McDonald case went down. I remember when he was convicted. I was living in Washington, D.C. We were getting local Virginia news on our TV all the time. And it was a huge big deal. I'm not sure if the rest of the country saw as much of it as I did and, or as we did in D.C., uh, and, and, and then it went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said, eh, you know, we'll let him out of jail. It's kind of cool. You know, he was just selling access. He wasn't actually doing things in exchange for money or something like that. And I didn't, you know, when I, when I saw this whole Michael Cohen thing come up and, you know, pay for play and pay for access and all this, I thought, you know, I don't, I didn't read that Supreme Court decision. I don't know that much about it. I want to get somebody on the air who does. And so with us is the Vice President for Policy and Litigation of Common Cause. His name is Paul Seamus Ryan. Uh, so uh, commoncause.org is the website. Vice President Paul Ryan. It sounds weird to say it, but glad to have you with us. It's so nice to be with you. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Paul. So, uh, and your Twitter handle, by the way, is the Paul S. Ryan, uh, or at Common Cause, of course, as well. So, Paul, tell us, uh, you know, what, what, did Bob, what was Bob McDonald convicted of and what did the Supreme Court, how did the Supreme Court change the law? Well, what Bob McDonald was convicted of was violating a federal statute that prohibits taking money or gifts in exchange for performing an official act in your role as a government official. So this phrase, official act, is a really important one for the purpose of this law. It was at the core of the McDonald prosecution and the appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. And in a nutshell, what the Supreme Court did under the guidance of Chief Justice Roberts is dramatically narrow what constitutes an official act and conclude that setting up meetings for one of your wealthy patrons who's given you gifts and cash or even attending that meeting with your wealthy patrons or benefactors, that alone is not a, quote, official act, close quote. So it's not covered by the law. It's not prohibited by the law. And, and let's be clear about this. Bob McDonald received, as I recall, well over $100,000 worth of gifts and, and uh, you know, what I think both he and the, the guy who was giving them to him uh, thought were basically bribes. Yeah, I think it was a total of about $170,000 worth of what looked to the regular person, a reasonable person, as a bribe. Right. So uh, when, when did the Supreme Court uh, have this ruling? It was like two years ago, wasn't it? Yeah, it was about two years ago. Yeah. So, you know, before that, for the first 240 some odd years of the of the republic, if you set up a, a for-profit corporation, you set up shop like Michael Cohen did, and you said to people, you said to Novartis, hey, you want to get the FDA off your back? I can do that. Uh, you say to AT&T, hey, you want to end net neutrality? I can, I can get the president to do that. You say to the Korean aerospace industries, um, you know, hey, you'd like to see rapprochement between North and South Korea? I can make that happen. I can get the president on that. Um, that would have landed Michael Cohen in jail in the past, but now not so much? It doesn't look to me like he is actually engaged in any activities that would constitute a violation of the law as the law is currently being interpreted by the court. Yeah because he hasn't actually done anything other than apparently introduce people to Trump or Trump's people. Is that right? Yeah, that seems like what he was hired to do. That seems like what he did do. 
it's it's worth noting maybe that he it doesn't appear that he was particularly good at what he was selling himself as. Um, you know, these big special interest clients, they dropped him after a year or so of his services. Some, after one meeting, wanted to drop him, but went ahead and paid him the full contract anyway, maybe not to offend him or the president. But right. these these uh, wealthy special interests, they don't seem to have gotten much bang for their buck, but they tried to, and yeah. that should be illegal. We're talking with Paul Ryan, the vice president of Common Cause. Paul Seamus Ryan, uh, vice president with policy and litigation. Paul, the uh you know, the, the conventional wisdom is that once the Supreme Court has ruled, that's kind of the end of it. I mean, you know, this goes back to the Marbury case, um, uh, although it was highly, highly debatable up until 1856 when uh, Dred Scott was the second time the Supreme Court had actually used judicial review like that. Um, do you see any any attempts by the legislative branch to clarify exactly what they meant when they said official acts? Or is this, you know, is this just a done deal? It's over. Nobody's paying attention to it. And hey, we've got a new incorruptible government. It seems like a done deal for now. The only caveat I would add, and I, I don't see any traction on any legislative proposals in Congress that would fix this problem at all. Um, the only caveat I would add is that a Supreme Court decision is indeed the final word on an issue or a topic, as you've indicated, until and unless the composition of the court itself changes. Then the court can change its mind. And you know, we've seen that happen under the Roberts Court, where the court itself has reversed prior Supreme Court decisions on issues like campaign finance law. So the court does change its mind, its view, its interpretation of statutes um, when the composition of the court changes, but I don't see any legislation moving anywhere anytime soon. Yeah, I, I, at least as long as the Republicans control the legislature. Um, uh, finally, I'm, I'm curious, you're the VP for policy and litigation at Common Cause. What are you guys up to these days? What are the big issues on your plate? Well, I'll tell you directly related to this story that, that we've spent our first few minutes chatting about, Essential Consultants LLC and Michael Cohen, the Essential Consultants, that's the name of the shell company he set up and used for all this. Right. He set that shell company up back in October of 2016 to facilitate what Common Cause <laughs> argues is a very illegal payment to Stormy Daniels to keep her quiet right before the election. It's illegal because it was a campaign contribution to the Trump campaign that wasn't above limits by Michael Cohen and not reported by the campaign. So at the core of all of this, the Shell Company, we do think they violated some federal laws. We filed complaints with the Department of Justice and the Federal Election Commission back in January on this issue, and it's gotten a lot of traction and a lot of attention. Do you think that, uh, oh, that's interesting, you're, you're going to have to get the, uh, it, 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 where to start with this? It seems that you could only prevail if Mueller or some sort of judicial process concluded that this payment to Stormy Daniels was, in fact, a campaign contribution. I mean, aren't you, to a certain extent, dependent for the success of your lawsuit on the success of Robert Mueller or some similar process? It's, it looks like this is being handled by the U.S. attorney in Manhattan, the Southern District of New York, and all mm. the reporting follow the, following the raids about a month ago, the execution of search warrants on Michael Cohen's home and office and a hotel where he was staying. The reporting in the wake of that was that the Department of Justice was looking for evidence of violations of these campaign finance laws, not only related to the Stormy Daniels payment, but also related to another hush money payment we filed a complaint about with the DOJ in February. That's the tabloid company, American Media Inc., and its payment in coordination with Michael Cohen to former Playboy playmate Karen McDougal, who also no. apparently had a, an affair with Trump a decade ago. So it looks like DOJ is investigating. This is in the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office in New York, and we're hoping it continues moving there. The, uh, the implication of the size of the slush fund that Michael Cohen supervised versus the amount that he paid out to Stormy Daniels, given that you know, apparently this thing was originally set up for the purposes of paying off you know, sexual partners of Donald Trump, um, whether he became president or not, uh, suggests that there were other women that were paid out of this slush fund. Do you have any evidence of that? Uh, no, not, no evidence that, that Michael Cohen and this slush fund was used to pay any other women. Uh, the tabloid company, American Media Inc., paid off both Karen McDougal as well as a doorman from a Trump building who apparently had knowledge of or believed he had knowledge of a pregnancy that Donald Trump had fathered outside of uh, his marriage a decade mm -hmm. or so ago. So there are other scandals, but I think it's very possible, likely even, that Michael Cohen was just trying to get rich by selling his relationship to the president, and that's what this money in this slush fund was about. It wasn't all about or even principally about hush money payments. I think those two issues might be separate legally and factually. Yeah. When it came out that John Edwards, uh, the presidential candidate back in the day, when it came out that his uh, girlfriend was pregnant, 
his uh, friend came forward and said, I impregnated her, I'm the father, uh, take John off the hook. It turned out that wasn't true. Um, there is speculation that it was John Edwards' kid. Uh, there is speculation that essentially that's what Elliot Broidy did, that he came forward and said, uh, you know, I will take responsibility for impregnating this, this uh, Playboy bunny uh, and, and I will pay her the $1.4 million to have this relationship with me and for her abortion. But in fact, it was Donald Trump who got her knocked up. Is there, you know, I've seen this over and over and over in the kind of speculative blog uh, world. Uh, any evidence of that? You know, I see circumstantial evidence in the most lengthy and detailed account of this theory. It was just published earlier this week. I think it was in New York Mag, maybe. Um, I consider everything in there to be, I consider the article to be a fascinating read. I consider there to be a lot of circumstantial evidence that that may be what happened, but I've seen no direct evidence yet that would rise to the level that would enable Common Cause, for example, to file an FTC complaint or a DOJ complaint on it. We're not there yet, but you know, I'm paying attention because I wouldn't put anything back past Team Trump. Yeah. Uh, on yeah. these matters. Yeah. Amen. Uh, Vice President Paul Ryan for policy and litigation at Common Cause, commoncause.org. Paul, thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Tom. Great talking with you. We'll be back in just a moment. Stick around. This is the Tom Hartman Program. It's talk media for the sane among us. We'll be back with your calls and more of the news of the day after this. Dave in Buffalo, New York. Dave, what's on your mind? Hey, how you doing? Uh, I was just wondering what you thought about um, Trump helping out our American citizens leaving North Korea. Uh, well, I, I, I riffed about this at some length in the first hour, Dave. Um, my take on it is that the hard work, the heavy lifting was done over the last two years by now President Moon of South Korea, back before he became president, during his campaign for president, and after he became president. He turned a, he handed a thumb drive over to Kim when they met at the DMZ, and that thumb drive had a, a detailed plan for bringing North Korea in, to integrate them economically with South Korea and China, and turning them into a Chinese command control semi-capitalist state. And Kim is apparently, uh, you know, dictator of North Korea, is apparently quite enthusiastic about having his country become very, very wealthy. Right now, they're in such bad shape that the trains, the maximum speed that any of the North Korean trains can travel is 28 miles an hour. Average speed is around 15 miles an hour. They're, you know, the whole country is falling apart. And they're looking right, at... but I'm asking, don't, don't you think that Trump, it's a little coincidental, you're not going to give Trump any credit? I mean, look, I mean, come on. You've got to give him a little credit on this. I mean, I think... Kim came to the table once there was a little bit of a hard line in the sand, so to speak. No, Kim was already at the table. Kim had been negotiating and working this so stuff out with President Moon. So you don't give Trump any, any credit? The credit that I'll give Trump is the credit that I typically give politicians, which is that a good politician doesn't start a parade or lead a parade. A good politician is capable of noticing when the parade is happening and jumping to the front of the line with a flag and saying, this is my parade. And that's what Trump has done. And, uh, you know, Moon is trying to give him credit because Moon is self-effacing and Moon and, and everybody, leaders all over the world get it that Trump is such a malignant narcissist that if you don't flatter him, you're going to be his enemy. Um, no, so- no, 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 no doubt. I'm just saying that there are times where, look, I know you hate Trump. I'm not a fan. I'm a fan of Ted Cruz. But come on. I mean, we have to give credit where it's due and we have to give proper criticism when it's due. Well, what's so the credit I, that I you would give really- Trump, Dave? What did he what? do that brought this about? I think that his tough stance and language and rhetoric, unfortunately, look. But it wasn't tough. Man, call it a he was just calling man. names. No, but listen. Yes, because there are some people in this world, Tom, where they're bullies. And unfortunately, they don't know any other way to negotiate other than being bullied. Here's and why I don't want to give Trump credit for that, guy. Dave. That kind of language is what starts wars. That kind of language is reckless and stupid. That kind of language, A, I don't believe it had anything to do with what's going on. But let's say it did for a minute. If we give Trump credit for that and say, oh, it's wonderful, all you have to do is call foreign leaders idiots and fat, and suddenly they will want to do what you want, let's do more of that, you're going to have a world at war. I don't think most leaders are like him, though. That's the point, is that he's the kind of guy, it's like Muammar Gaddafi. You never heard from him after Reagan dropped bombs on his palace. 
You know, yeah, you have to sometimes do that. Yeah, but Trump didn't drop bombs. Trump was no, calling no, no. names. He, he's he's Dave, we're, Dave, we're he's talking in circles. I'm, 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 gonna, I'm just going to cut this conversation right here. I think we both had our say at least twice. Kathy in Cambridge, Ohio. Hey, Kathy, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. You were just talking about, and forgive me, I can't pronounce it any better than you, but the Roundup situation. Yeah, glyphosate or glyphosate, yeah. Yeah, yeah. just a little insight as, as a semi-lifelong farmer. Um, we used Roundup products on our small farm. And at one time, if you purchased seed, it was uh, Roundup ready. And if you grew a crop from that seed and marketed it, you could then not save enough of that seed to reseed, which is what most small farmers do right. for the following year. Well, in fact, or if you tried to save it, they would arrest. They would uh, sue you. Yes, they would sue and they would arrest. They would intimidate. Yeah. And um, quite frankly, um, I personally am not comfortable with chemical use. Period. Um, however, under these circumstances, I was really angry, and. Um, I'm, I'm just tired of the whole thing in general, the bullying in general, the corporate bullying in general. Yeah. You speak to that issue so articulately better than most, and I appreciate it. But, but now that's it. I mean, if we couldn't fight them then, um, where are the lawyers and teams of lawyers right. who have the, the average person's well-being? No, your, your, your point is well taken, Kathy. And for people who don't know what we're talking about, Kathy and I are both talking about a story that I did earlier in the show where the U.S., uh, the, the FDA has found, uh, scientists at the FDA have found, or the USDA, one or the other, I'd have to go back and find the story, um, mm -hmm. have found that, yeah, it was the FDA, have found that there are measurable trace residues of glyphosate, also known as Roundup, in virtually every food product in America. I mean, they, the only product this guy could find that didn't have glyphosate in it was broccoli, and broccoli is not grown with, with uh, herbicides. Um, and, and this is a chemical that, according to the European Union, has been implicated in the, in the development of cancer. Kathy, thanks for the call, and uh, you know, thanks for being one of our farmers. We, uh, we need food, it's a good thing. Oh my. <clears throat> Interesting. I, 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 I was really impressed and frankly surprised uh, by today's vote, our, our, straw, our straw poll of, of y'all, you know, who, you, who you'd like to see running for president. I, I was expecting a lot less Bernie and a lot more of other people, and it just kind of amazes me. But anyhow, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires all of us, and that includes you. Get out there, get active tag. You're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.